Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? Very few of us are exposed to meaningful advice on how to manage our finances. Even fewer have the means to get professional financial guidance. Betterment is a platform that was built to do something radical, to give accessible financial advice that puts you first. If you're like most Americans, your money is probably sitting in a savings account, likely earning you next to nothing. Maybe you have an investment account that you're not really sure what to do with. Betterment can help you make sense of what to do with your money. Investing involves risk, but you don't have to know the ins and the outs of the stock market to start investing for your future. Betterment's technology will put your money to work choosing the stocks and strategies that are right for you because we know you have other things to do. Betterment's platform can even provide guidance on what financial goals make sense for you. Give your money a new home with Betterment, peace of mind included. Download the Betterment app today. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T for the betterment of you. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it and you're using illegal drugs, alcohol, or other bad influences to try and escape the pain, you're not alone. Please stop and do me a favor. Call 800-831-1560. They'll show you a way out of the darkness. That's 800-831-1560. 800-831-1560. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. The story of Bonnie Lee Scott is a forgotten Chicago tragedy. Bonnie vanished on September 22, 1956. That evening, around 6.30 p.m., she left the home where she lived in Addison, Illinois, and told her grandmother that she was going out to look for a blouse. Bonnie lived with her aunt and uncle, Mrs. Robert Schwallow, their daughter Sue, 15, and Bonnie's maternal grandmother, Mrs. Doris Hitchens. Her parents were separated and in the midst of a divorce. Bonnie was an ordinary girl, a sophomore at York Community High School, and a babysitter for many of the young children who lived in the quiet suburban community. The five-room, newly-built ranch house where she lived was virtually identical to all the others on the street. Before the night of September 22nd, Bonnie never caused a problem, never drew much attention, and seemed like every other girl her age. But that night, she became a mystery. As the police began tracing her steps, assuming that she was a runaway, they managed to find four teenagers who saw her at a diner in Addison around 7.30 p.m. that night. She was also seen at a surplus store, located next door to the town's police station. After that, she had apparently vanished into thin air. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Did lost cosmonauts make it into space before Yuri Gagarin? Don't take a gift from Gracie Watson's grave, or her lifelike statue might cry. 
tears of blood. A latchkey kid comes home to an empty house, or so they thought, until they heard footsteps in another room. People often encounter strange and frightening things when they experience sleep paralysis, but in one particular story, the horrors began well before going to bed. And did Bonnie Scott run away? Was she kidnapped? Murdered, perhaps? All anyone knew was that no one had a clue where she was. She had simply disappeared without a trace. We'll begin with her story. Now, bolt your doors. Lock your windows. Turn off your lights. Grab your my pillow, And come with me into the weird darkness. It turned out that Bonnie was not exactly the ordinary high school girl that everyone assumed she was. Her family troubles had made her restless, and the police initially assumed she was a runaway because she had done it before. One weekend, she disappeared with another of her friends and spent the weekend in the city. She also occasionally skipped school. Once, after she was caught in the company of another truant, her friend told her that they had better knuckle down and take their schooling seriously so they wouldn't end up like the Grimes sisters. On September 23rd, a man named Charles Melquist telephoned Bonnie's home. The 23-year-old stoneworker from Villa Park told Jean Schwallow that he had received two phone calls concerning a man with whom Bonnie Lee had quarreled. Jean called the police and reported the information. Melquist, repeating his story for William Devaney, an Addison police detective, said that Bonnie had called him at 8.15 on the evening of her disappearance and said that she had misgivings about the man she was with. She hung up on him abruptly after Melquist told her that it was her own problem. Melquist told police that he and Bonnie were friends and that she often consulted him as a sort of big brother and that he regretted not being more patient with her call. He also told Detective Devaney about the second phone call, which came that night around 11 p.m., from a young man that he didn't know. The caller said that Bonnie had gotten out of his car near Mannheim Road and U.S. Route 66 after an argument and wanted Melquist to bring her home. Melquist said that he went to the spot but found no trace of the girl. Police detectives continued the search for the girl, but what few clues they had led nowhere. They searched for the young man that Bonnie was allegedly out with that night, trying to trace the names that were in a small white address book found in Bonnie's room. They questioned 38 young men, two of them were later given lie detector tests, but the trail soon petered out and went cold. Then, on November 15, 1958, a group of Boy Scouts on a nature hike in the Argonne Woods Forest Preserve made a gruesome discovery in a gully off LaGrange Road the nude, decapitated body of a young girl. The dump site was just a few miles from where the nude, frozen bodies of the Grimes sisters had been discovered less than two years before. The body turned out to be that of Bonnie Lee Scott. She had been killed with a large knife, stabbed several times, and then her head had been removed. There was no sign of her clothing. The investigation geared up once again, 
On top of the interview list for the police was Charles Melquist, the helpful witness who claimed Bonnie had called him for help on the night she disappeared. Detectives spent Sunday afternoon, November 16th, trying to track down his whereabouts. When he heard the police were looking for him, he walked into the station, voluntarily, around 11.30 p.m. to answer questions. He sat down with detectives, and he went over his statements. When he left, they told him that he was merely helping with the case. He was not a suspect, they told him. But they lied. While he was kept busy at the station, the police were impounding his 1958 Silver Chevrolet. It was later discovered to be the car that he killed Bonnie in. Malquist was brought back to the station on Monday morning. He told the same story over again, and detectives were now convinced that he had memorized it. Chicago detectives offered to send for a polygraph machine, and it arrived at the station later that day. Melquist was given the first of two lie detector tests. He failed miserably the first time, and so detectives agreed to a second examination at the offices of John Reed, a polygraph expert and police consultant. On the way to Reed's office, Melquist and the detectives stopped for a meal, and while he ate, he made the comment to one of the detectives that the jog was up. He failed another lie detector test and decided to confess to Bonnie's murder. He wrote a seven-page confession, and by 10 p.m. that night, he had been officially booked for murder. As word reached the newspapers that Melquist had confessed to the murder, neighbors began to speak out about the man, and disturbing information came to light about Melquist's contact with Bonnie and scores of other young girls, whose names and telephone numbers were later found in his possession. His history soon revealed a troubled past, dating back to high school and scores of inappropriate contacts with young women. There were obscene telephone calls, stalking incidents, and worse. A young woman named Arlene Rullo told police that Melquist tried to choke her while she sat in a parked car with him. Two other young women also came forward to allege that Melquist had also tried to choke them while on dates. Both attacks had taken place within the last 18 months. But nothing that the police learned was as chilling as the words that came directly from the mouth of Charles Melquist. On Tuesday, the lanky young man reenacted the gruesome crime, telling the police that he had killed her in the driveway of his Villa Park home. They'd been on a date and stopped by his house. When they returned to the car, they were goofing around and wrestling. Melquist put a pillow over Bonnie's face and accidentally smothered her with it. He had then taken off her clothing, stuffed it under the car seat, and set out to find a place where her body could be hidden where there was little chance it would be found. Driving south and east, he followed LaGrange Road, about a mile south of 95th Street, where he dumped her body in a gully where the Argonne Forest Preserve bordered the highway. He dumped her body over the guardrail, hoping it would be hidden by the brush. But Melquist couldn't stop thinking about it. He came back on the Friday after the murder just to make sure she was there, and then returned three weeks later with a knife and a pitchfork. He said that he planned to dig a grave. Instead, he cut off Bonnie's head and kicked it a few feet away. Then he had an urge to cut and mutilate the corpse. He said that he threw the knife and the clothing into the woods, but they were never found. Melquist signed a 45-page second confession about Bonnie's murder. But then, as soon as he had an attorney, immediately denied it, 
claiming that he had been hypnotized into confessing by John Reed. The case went to trial in April 1959, and the defense rested its case after Melquist took the stand and testified to being under a hypnotic spell during the confessions. The jury was not impressed with his story. On May 2nd, they found him guilty of Bonnie's murder, and on June 12th, Melquist was formally sentenced to 99 years in prison. Judge Mel Abrahamson of DuPage County Circuit Court imposed the sentence after denying a motion for a new trial for Melquist. The former construction worker gulped nervously several times as Judge Abrahamson ordered him incarcerated at Joliet Penitentiary. When asked if he had anything to say for himself, he whispered, no. Of his 99-year sentence, Melquist only served just over 11 years. He was paroled and later got married and had two children. He died in 2010, 50 years later than he deserved for the heinous crime for which he was convicted. Melquist was convicted of Bonnie's murder, but did he get away with other murders that he was never even questioned about, including those of Barbara and Patricia Grimes? As far back as 1958, Melquist was being linked to the Grimes murders. There is no question that there were some eerie similarities in the cases and some disturbing connections between Melquist and the Grimes case. Coincidences? Perhaps. But these links cause many to believe that Melquist was also the Grimes killer. In addition to the basic facts in the case, young girls gone missing, found stripped naked, possibly smothered to death, dumped in a wooded area on Chicago's southwest side, the police also discovered another link. Melquist had the telephone numbers of two girls who were neighbors of the Grimes sisters. It's a tenuous link, but it's there. Like Bonnie, the Grimes sisters were found naked and their clothing was never found. Bonnie's body was too decomposed when it was found for pathologists to determine a cause of death. In the Grimes case, because no cause of death could be found, the autopsy reports were altered to say that they froze to death. According to Melquist, Bonnie had been smothered. It's been suggested that this could have happened to the Grimes sisters, too. The site where Bonnie's body was found is in the same general area on the southwest side as the place where Barbara and Patricia Grimes were found. Not far from both sites is Santa Fe Park, which was searched thoroughly for clues in the Grimes case. Melquist told investigators that he frequently went to the races in that park. Was Charles Leroy Melquist convicted killer of Bonnie Scott also the man who killed the Grimes sisters? Some historians believe that he was, and there are similarities. Whatever else Melquist was, he was a disturbed individual and a coward. He stalked women with anonymous telephone calls. He choked them into unconsciousness so that he could have sex with them, and when the police caught up with him, he fell apart. Investigators weren't fooled by his obviously rehearsed story, and before long he had confessed to everything. Even though he later repudiated the confession, it was the truth, or at least as close to the truth as Melquist could manage. Melquist may or may not have also killed the Grimes sisters, but who knows what other horrific crimes that he would have committed had he not been sent to prison for a laughably short number of years for the murder of Bonnie Lee Scott. It's too bad that it took the tragic death of one young girl 
to save the lives of possibly many others. Up next, did lost cosmonauts make it into space before Yuri Gagarin? And don't take a gift from Gracie Watson's grave, or her lifelike statue might cry tears of blood. These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. I'd like to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Weird Darkness. I actually approached them about being a sponsor of Weird Darkness. I use them myself because, well, let's face it, sometimes life gets a bit overwhelming with all the phone calls, meetings, emails, family obligations, school stuff, office politics, depression, money, relationship issues. Heck, sometimes you don't even know what's wrong, you just want to scream for no apparent reason. I have been there more times than I care to count. But at BetterHelp.com weird, you can get a free week of professional help from a certified therapist or counselor in a variety of ways – text, chat, phone, or video, whichever works best for you. You'll be privately and securely connected to a counselor in your area that works with your schedule and is a lot less expensive than an office visit with someone who tells you when they are available. They even have financial aid if you need it. They're not a crisis line, but if you visit BetterHelp.com weird, you can get started with free counseling for a week and start speaking with a counselor in less than 24 hours. Don't like the counselor that you connect with? You can always ask for a different one. you got to click with somebody if you're going to trust them with your thoughts, am I right? So set up your account for a free week of counseling at BetterHelp.com weird. That's BetterHelp.com weird. On Wednesday, April 12, 1961, the Soviet Union announced that cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin had become the first man to journey into outer space. Overnight, the 27-year-old became a national hero and the most famous man in the world. His achievement recognized in front-page headlines from Washington to Beijing. For the Soviets, this was a spectacular validation of the communist system. They had beaten the capitalist Americans to yet another crucial space milestone and demonstrated their technological supremacy to the world. Gagarin was the perfect face of the USSR. A committed communist, he was also young and photogenic. For Russian leader Khrushchev, this major propaganda coup could hardly have gone better. But not everyone was convinced. Right from the first announcement, there were question marks about the story the Soviet press agencies were putting out. Several days previously, Western correspondents in Moscow had been tipped off that a successful flight had already taken place. Soviet state TV cameras had even moved in to film them reporting the news. But the news never came. Not until Gagarin's flight was announced on the 12th, the notoriously secretive Soviets seemed to be spinning the story. Then the Daily Worker, a British communist newspaper with connections in the Kremlin, reported on the 12th that the launch had actually occurred the previous Friday. The newspaper claimed, according to its sources, that the flight was a success. But the return to Earth had gone wrong and the cosmonaut had landed far off course and was badly injured. Was this the reason for the cover-up? Unlike their rivals at NASA, 
The Soviet space program was run on a military basis and operated under intense secrecy. It also had a history of covering up its mistakes. It seemed unlikely the Soviet leadership would want to invite the eyes of the world on its achievement if it had gone partially wrong. If this earlier flight had succeeded in putting the man into orbit, then who was he? Numerous press reports at the time intimated it was a famous test pilot called Vladimir Ilushin. Unlike the rookie, Gagarin, Ilushin was the USSR's most experienced and decorated test pilot. His father was also a famous aircraft designer with close ties to the Kremlin. Ilushin, rather than Gagarin, was the obvious choice for such a prestigious mission. But what if the mission was not entirely successful? In a climate of propaganda and secrecy, could the Soviet leadership really countenance such a perceived embarrassment been revealed to the world? It is therefore not far-fetched to suggest that Ilushin's conjectured and ill-fated flight was therefore airbrushed out of official Soviet space history. But could the truth be far darker than mere Cold War paranoia? Just weeks before Gagarin's supposed first spaceflight, two Italian brothers based at an experimental listening station in Turin claimed to have picked up something truly chilling. It was the sound of a cosmonaut suffocating to death as his capsule spiraled off into space. If genuine, the first man in space never even made it back to Earth. As for Yuri Gagarin, he never flew into space again. After his initial fame faded, his life begun to spiral out of control. He started to drink, and his behavior at official functions was often an embarrassment to the Communist Party. Gagarin died in a mysterious jet crash in 1968, itself subject to many conspiracy theories. Was his sad downfall a consequence of living with a terrible lie? Had a lost cosmonaut beaten him to the crown of the first man in space? Whilst the Soviet Union trumpeted its achievements in space around the world, it was studious in concealing its mistakes. From huge disasters to minor indiscretions, the leadership would airbrush anything regarded as embarrassing, figuratively and often literally, out of the historical record. In October 1960, at least 150 people were incinerated on a launch pad after an explosion of an R-16 ballistic missile. The disaster, later named the Nederland Catastrophe after the chief marshal of the artillery who was killed in the accident, was quickly shrouded in a veil of official secrecy. It wasn't until 39 years later, in 1989, as communism began to fall, that the truth was finally acknowledged by the Soviet government. The death of a young fighter pilot Valentin Bondarenko in a fire during cosmonaut training in 1961 was also concealed by the USSR until 1986. At the other end of the scale, cosmonaut Grigory Grigoryevich Nelyubov was expelled from the program for brawling, and his image was subsequently airbrushed out of official photographs. There were also numerous reports of pre-Gagarin cosmonauts perishing in attempted manned spaceflights. In 1959, Renowned German rocket scientist Hermann Oberth, then working for the U.S., quoted American intelligence reports detailing a number of failed manned space launches. According to the reports, at least one cosmonaut died in 1957 or 58, and possibly others in 1959. 
This coincided with intelligence coming out of Slovakia which told a similar story. Among the Czech leak, four cosmonauts perished in doomed launches. Alexei Ladovsky, Andrei Mutkov, Sergei Shiborin, and Maria Gromova. The possibility that these unfortunate men and women may still be floating in the cold of deep space, their capsules having become their tombs, is a deeply disturbing one. But some extraordinary evidence that emerged from Italy appeared to support this unsettling prospect. In the late 1950s, two Italian brothers, Achille and Giovanni Giudica Cordiglia, became fascinated by the early space endeavors of the Soviets and Americans. The pair, keen amateur radio buffs, were excited about the prospect of trying to capture and record transmissions from these early missions. Using borrowed and scavenged equipment, they set up a listening station in an old World War II bunker on the outskirts of Turin that they dubbed Tora Bert. Over the coming years, the station would record thousands of hours of flight telemetry and voice communications from Sputnik, Vostok, Explorer, and numerous other Soviet and American programs. In 1960, the brothers made headlines in Italy and around the world with their claim that they had heard communications from secret clandestine Russian space launches. What made this so sensational was, according to the brothers, the cosmonauts involved had died in space. In May 1960, they first picked up communications from what appeared to be an unpublicized manned Soviet flight. If so, presumably it had failed to return its occupants to Earth alive. Interesting corroboration for this came from writer Robert A. Heinlein, who heard of such a manned attempt from Russian soldiers whilst traveling in Vilnius in May 1960. Later that year, Torbert tracked a faint SOS signal from a craft that seemed to be departing Earth's orbit. Again, if this recording is genuine, we would have to assume the men had not survived. Then, just weeks before Gagarin's putative flight, the brothers claimed to have captured the forced breathing and rapid heartbeat of a dying cosmonaut as his spacecraft faltered in Earth's orbit. Were these lost cosmonauts, like those mentioned in the earlier American and Czech intelligence reports? The station in Turin continued to pick up broadcasts of apparently doomed Soviet missions for the next few years, including the desperate last words of a female cosmonaut before she burnt up on re-entry. In 2001, a senior engineer on the Soviet space program came forward to confirm what the brothers had seemingly caught on tape. Mikhail Rudenko told Pravda that spacecraft with pilots named Ladovsky, Shaborin, and Mitkov were launched from the Kapustin Yar Cosmodrome in 1957, 1958, and 1959. All three pilots died during the flights, and their names were never officially published, Rudenko said. But not everything the listening station picked up was so horrific. One transmission seemed to suggest someone else had made it into space and back just days before Gagarin's official flight. Vladimir Sergeyevich Ilushin was Russia's greatest test pilot and holder of multiple speed and altitude records. For those skeptical of Yuri Gagarin's claim to be the first man to travel into space, Ilushin is the most likely alternative, or at least the most likely alternative that made it back to Earth alive. Ilyushin was named as the true first man in space by foreign journalists in Moscow 
in the days surrounding Gagarin's purported historical flight. Dennis Ogden of the British Daily Worker and French journalist Edward Bobrovsky were among the first to identify Aleutian and many others soon followed, supposedly on the basis of inside information. Aleutian had the perfect credentials for the part. He was the son of a legendary aircraft designer, Sergei Aleutian, and a decorated test pilot in his own right. The family also had impeccable links to the Soviet establishment. His whereabouts around the time of Yuri Gagarin's flight were shrouded in mystery. In all the fanfare and pomp surrounding the Gagarin triumph, Aleutian, one of the country's great heroes, was nowhere to be seen. The official story had it that his absence was because he had a car crash the previous month and was recovering in the hospital. However, this was only the first of many stories. Throughout the aftermath of the Gagarin flight, the Soviet state press agencies, so adept at propaganda, seemed unable to give a consistent account about Aleutian. In reaction to the foreign press stories that he had been the first true man in space, the Soviets simply denied he was even a cosmonaut. However, in the months before Gagarin's flight, news that Aleutian was in cosmonaut training had already made it to the Soviet press. There was even a photograph of him in a spacesuit published in the newspapers. The details of Aleutian's supposed crash also changed numerous times. Now it was so serious that it had put him in a coma for almost a year, making it impossible for him to have undergone the cosmonaut training at all. This, too, was undermined by another photograph that appeared showing him looking decidedly conscious and healthy during this time whilst receiving the Hero of the Soviet Union award. The reason for his prolonged public absence also evolved. The news story had Aleutian recuperating from his car crash in China, an explanation that raised many eyebrows among seasoned foreign correspondents in Moscow. The Soviet healthcare system in 1961 was extensive and of a high standard. It sounded deeply unlikely that it would send such a prestigious figure to a foreign country for treatment. Were these unconvincing and shifting accounts simply a cover for the truth the journalists had been reporting all along? And was the strange story of Aleutian's absence designed to hide the embarrassing fact that, whilst he made it into space and back, he had landed miles off course in mainland China? The famous Judica Cordiglia recordings represent perhaps the most compelling evidence for the theory that other cosmonauts made it into space before Gagarin. The brothers became extremely famous in the Italian press because of their recordings and were subject to many national and international newspaper reports. However, some science writers and space experts who have examined the Italian brothers' evidence have cast doubt on the veracity of their claims. Several aspects of the brothers' recordings did not match known technical and operational details of the Soviet space program, such as the correct communications protocols used by the cosmonauts. Their recording of a craft leaving Earth's orbit was obviously suspect as the Soviets had no ability to leave orbit in 1961. They did not achieve this capability until 1969. The famous tape with an audible heartbeat supposedly from a dying cosmonaut is also unlikely to be genuine, as the Russians did not broadcast such information across audio channels. But perhaps the biggest problem with the brothers' claim is the fact nobody else was able to reproduce them. Whilst the setup at Tora Burt was superb for amateurs, 
it paled in significance compared to the far more sophisticated radio monitoring arrays set up by the Americans, British, French, and Germans. Yet such powerful installations as Jodrell Bank in the UK and the America's huge listening station in Turkey had not observed the Russian failures claimed by Tora Burt. Bernard Lovell, director of Jodrell Bank, wrote in 1963, we have no reason to believe that there have been any unsuccessful manned space attempts by the USSR. We could surmise that Lovell was lying, but to what purpose? For the West to forego the immense propaganda value of exposing Russian lies and failures at the height of the Cold War seems improbable. By the early 1960s, the Americans were lagging far behind the USSR in the space race and such an opportunity to exploit the reckless indifference to human life of the Soviets would have surely been taken. The obvious conclusion is that the Judica Cordiglia brothers had, at best, made a mistake. Some have suggested that their recording of a dying cosmonaut was actually one of the many dogs the Soviets sent up into space. A less charitable explanation is the brothers had fabricated the communications and the whole thing was a hoax. Some of the events they claimed to have captured tended to support this. In particular, the recording purporting to be a female cosmonaut's last words as she burnt up on re-entry contains poor Russian, broken grammar, and many gibberish phrases. Soviet cosmonauts were renowned for being extremely well-educated, and the idea that they would send someone into space with such a poor command of their own language is unlikely. In contrast, the Judica Cordiglia brothers' own sister had begun to learn Russian in order to help them with translations of the tapes. Her level of Russian was much more consistent with the voice on the tapes than a genuine cosmonaut. Whilst there is no doubt the brothers had made genuine recordings, had they fabricated the more sensational tapes in order to keep themselves in the limelight? One curious fact seriously undermines the idea that the Soviets had covered up earlier failed manned spaceflights. If they were so intensely paranoid about even minor failures becoming public, would they have alerted the world to Gagarin's flight whilst he was still in orbit? The Soviet space authorities actually announced Gagarin's feat 30 minutes before the landing and even prepared press releases in case his flight landed off course and they would require international assistance. Clearly, the Kremlin took a pragmatic view of the prospect that a cosmonaut's re-entry into Earth may go wrong, especially with the possibility that they may end up in a foreign country. It therefore makes little sense that they would have gone to such lengths to cover up Lucian's supposed off-course landing just five days before. Some critics have questioned the original source of the story that Vladimir Lucian was the real first man in space. Since 1961, almost every version of the theory has been based on the same April 11th newspaper article in the British communist newspaper, The Daily Worker. Journalist Dennis Ogden was responsible for the story and always claimed to have based it on a reliable inside source, but since he refused to name the source, it was impossible to verify the information. Many critics think Ogden's source was really a fig leaf to cover the fact that he had jumped to a rather embarrassing conclusion. Ogden was a neighbor of Lucian and had noted his public absence. When a few days before Gagarin's flight he had heard rumors of a launch, he simply had a journalistic hunch it was Lucian on board. The story was little more than a guess on Ogden's part, a guess that was reported around the world 
and is still cited as evidence of a cover-up 50 years later. That Ogden himself had little confidence in his own scoop is obvious. The very next day, he wrote a story in the Daily Worker proclaiming Gagarin as the first man in space after all. Savannah's Bonaventure Cemetery is known for its lush scenery and striking monuments to the dead. Yet there is one particular headstone that stops visitors in their tracks. Surrounded by a long iron fence, sitting pensively with her right hand resting on a tree stump, is the statue of a little girl. Her name is Gracie Watson, also known as Little Gracie. She was the only child of Wales, W.J., and Margaret Frances Watson. Wales took over management of the luxurious Pulaski Hotel in the 1880s, though the Watsons found themselves largely ignored by the city's upper class. Margaret longed to integrate herself into the community and began giving away food and drinks at their hotel. Soon, the family's social status improved. Numerous parties were held at the Pulaski, to which Gracie was often invited. The little girl charmed guests with her lovable personality, taking on the role of an adorable hostess. When she grew tired of mingling with the adults, Gracie would often slip away to play beneath the back stairwell. Her disappearing act became a running joke with the partygoers who would ask aloud, where is Gracie? as a way of acknowledging the lateness of the hour. Then, just two days before Easter in 1889, Gracie Watson died of pneumonia. She was six years old. Wales and Margaret were inconsolable. A grief-stricken Margaret claimed that she could still hear little Gracie laughing and playing under the back staircase. Soon thereafter, Wales moved his wife into the newly opened DeSoto Hotel to escape their painful memories. But over the years, different staff members insisted that Gracie's voice could still be heard near the stairs. Other staff members refused to go into the basement due to the ominous sound of low moaning and clanking metal. Wales Watson, in a final tribute to his daughter, hired sculptor John Walls to carve a life-sized monument of Gracie using a photograph as a reference. The finished work became the marker of her grave in Bonaventure Cemetery. It is said to be eerily accurate, all the way down to the shape of her mouth. And as the years passed, tales of Gracie's life and her haunting gravestone grew. Visitors to Gracie's grave often leave toys and objects for her to enjoy. Some say Gracie's statue cries tears of blood if these gifts are removed. Numerous witnesses have claimed to see what they perceived to be a real girl in a white dress skipping through the cemetery grass, vanishing into thin air. Others have seen little Gracie playing in Johnson Square, a public space near the Pulaski Hotel's former location. At least one person has seen a young girl staring from the window of the building at the corner of Bryan and Bull Street, where the Pulaski stood until it was demolished in 1957. In the spring of 2002, a Savannah tour guide led a group past the Pulaski's former site and began to tell Gracie's story. Suddenly, she noticed an unfamiliar four-story structure reflected in the window of the building she faced. The guide spun around but saw no such building. She continued, however, to see the same reflection in other buildings until she finished Gracie's story. 
Later, after seeing a historic photo of the Pulaski Hotel, the tour guide went pale and confirmed it was the reflection she had seen. Gracie Watson's grave is one of the most heavily trafficked in Bonaventure Cemetery. The iron fence was specifically added to prevent damage to the sculpture. Yet, if the aforementioned sightings are to be believed, Gracie Watson herself is also watching over her resting place. So if you're ever in Savannah, Georgia, and decide to visit the beautiful 160-acre grounds of Bonaventure Cemetery, keep your eyes and ears open for a little girl in Victorian clothing. She may just be coming out to play. When Weird Darkness returns, a latchkey kid comes home to an empty house, or so they thought until they heard footsteps in another room. People often encounter strange and frightening things when they experience sleep paralysis, but in one particular story, the horrors began well before going to bed. These stories are up next. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Weirdo family member Kitty sent me an email saying, My husband works out of state the majority of the time, and when he left, he wanted to take his MyPillow with him. That's how much he loves his. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com. Promo code WEIRD. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Murderous Minds, Volume 1, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker. What goes on in the mind of a murderous killer? What is it about some people that lead them to commit murder? Is there something that is different, or is it simply a switch that gets turned on? Murderous Minds, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines, offers a look into the lives of individuals who didn't just become killers, but who managed to avoid the media storm that usually accompanies them. Inside, you will hear about people like Sante Kimes, a 65-year-old mother who was driven by greed and who committed multiple murders with her son. Robert James Ackerman, the MBA graduate who murdered three people in order to continue getting lap dances from a stripper that he became infatuated with. Larry Jean Ashbrook, who became deluded into thinking that strangers were accusing him of murder. When he could not take it anymore, he carried out a massacre at the Wedgwood Baptist Church. And more. Each story harbors its own distinct narrative and reasoning for the perpetrators of these heinous crimes, along with the background to the case, their lives, and the aftermath of their actions. Sometimes the truth is more appalling than anything fiction can provide, and Murderous Minds proves it once again. Murderous Minds, Volume 1, Stories of Real-Life Murderers that Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker. Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample or purchase the title on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. While this isn't the absolutely most terrifying or horrific story, it is the strangest and scariest thing that's ever happened to me. 
So this happened when I was around 10. I've always taken the bus home from school, and I'd gotten a home key for my eighth birthday. This was because most of the time, neither of my parents were home by the time I arrived. Today was a day like normal. I got home at 2.45, unlocked the back door with my home key, and walked into the house. I've always felt slightly uneasy about being home by myself, mostly because of many late nights listening to creepy YouTube videos, but today I just felt terrified as I stepped into the house. I brushed off the uneasy feeling, dropping my backpack on the floor and starting on my homework. About 30 minutes in, the longest that my parents had ever been gone, I heard small, faint, footstep-like sounds upstairs, coming from the laundry room and going towards my mom's desk. My mother's office is right by the laundry room, and you can access it through a door. I work at the kitchen table, and my mom's office is on a bit of a balcony above. Then I heard the sound of rustling papers. This terrified me out of my mind. I froze up, my pencil stopped moving, and my entire body froze in fear. I couldn't move a muscle, not even if I had wanted to. It was only 20 minutes more later when my dad came home that I could slightly relax again. Once my dad started on his work, I went upstairs to my mother's office, and the sight there shocked me. My mother's work papers, generally organized in neat stacks, were scattered across her loft. Freaked out, I quickly stacked the papers and put them back where they belonged, or at least where I had assumed they belonged. That laundry room has scared me ever since. However, the mystery of who or what was up there that day will forever haunt me. For now, however, I'm just glad I don't live in that house anymore. I'm pretty sure many of you are familiar with the term sleep paralysis. I, unfortunately, was a victim of it. Moreover, it happened to me on New Year's Day of 2015. Me and my girlfriend were in Bangkok for a short New Year's countdown holiday. This trip was actually an impromptu one, having booked air tickets and accommodation on the last week of December 2014. Due to the Christmas and New Year holiday period, most hotels were already fully booked, and we had to stay in three different hotels over the six days we were there. This incident happened during our stay on the second hotel, a four-star service apartment at Thong Lor area and adjacent to Akemia Road, where all the local hip clubs are. The hotel looks decent enough, not the sort of place you would expect to be haunted. Amenities around the vicinity of the hotel were pretty good, many good restaurants and supermarkets. Reviews were good as well, with minor complaints on the quality of the room and it being a little worn down. It was supposed to be a two-night stay at this hotel until we switched again. We checked into the hotel on the 30th of December 2014. The receptionist gave us the key to a room on the fifth floor. As I travel quite often, and also being a be-safe-than-sorry kind of person, the first thing I always do before I enter a hotel room is to always knock on the door three times or ring the doorbell if there is one as a polite gesture to notify the occupants that I will be entering and staying. I vividly remembered immediately after I opened the main door, the door to the bedroom opened itself. I'm pretty sure it wasn't because the chambermaid did not close the bedroom door properly after cleaning the room and the draft and pressure from the opening of the main door had caused the bedroom door to creep open 
but because I heard the sound of the bedroom doorknob being turned. I could have sworn also that I saw a shadow dart quickly into the bedroom instantly. My girlfriend was standing behind me, so she didn't see the shadow, but she did witness the bedroom door opening by itself. Both of us looked at each other and both of us had the same thought. We went down to the reception area and after explaining the situation, with dismay and disbelief from the hotel staff of cause, politely requested a room change. But due to the peak holiday period, the only available room left was at the corner on the ground floor, and we were left to no avail but to accept it. Come to think about it, I suspect that that room might be a room most typical hotels leave vacant for regular occupants. The room seemed okay, and after we settled our barang-barang, we headed out for our activities for the day and came back quite late as we went to a nearby club to party. Nothing happened during the first night. We woke up in the afternoon, showered, changed, and went out. We ended our countdown at Asiatique and went back to our hotel around 1 a.m. Now, apart from the first night, which was okay, the first thing I noticed immediately after I entered the room was the warmth and stuffiness I felt. I adjusted the air conditioner's temperature in the bedroom as well as the living room, but the funny thing is, moments after that, the room would be very warm and then gradually would feel cold again and sporadically feel warm again. Thinking it might be attributed to the fact that we'd been out the whole day and the tiredness was starting to creep in, I shrugged it off as being weary. So, to cut the long story short, after we showered and were getting ready for bed, I started to hear faint tapping noises like fingernails tapping on wooden hollow planks or cheap plywood. The tapping noise sounded random and inconsistent. Two taps, pause, then a few short bursts of taps, pause. I cannot pinpoint the location of the tapping at first, it was faint and distant, and secondly, being in a room situated on the ground floor, the outside ambiance noise was drowning it out. I tried not to think about it, and I also did not wish to further freak my girlfriend out, but I paid close attention to it nonetheless. Within 20 minutes, my girlfriend was fast asleep, but I, on the other hand, cannot sleep at all. I felt very uneasy as if there was something or someone watching us. Furthermore, the difference in temperature made me sweat and froze at the same time. It also felt nauseating just to be in the room. I felt heavy and weighted down. The tapping noises were also beginning to feel or sound louder, and this time I can pinpoint it being on or around the wall dividing the bedroom and the living room. I was beginning to feel really tired and sleepy, but every time I closed my eyes, I would feel the uneasiness weighing heavily on me, and my inner voice was telling me to stay awake. At around 3 a.m., I can honestly say that I do not know whether I was sleeping or if it was a dream. It felt as if I was sleeping and awake at the same time. It was a very surreal kind of feeling. In the dream, I awake to find the toilet light switched off, which was actually on with the door slightly ajar. The room was dark with faint light shining in through the window from the parking lot outside, and I can make out the area in the room. I felt petrified and wanted to get out of the bed to check out what was wrong. This was when the thing appeared. It appeared on the side of my bed on my right. It was dark and shaped like a person. 
I could shout. I wanted to get up, but it sat on me. It felt distinctly as if it was a person's butt sitting on my stomach, literally feeling the shape and softness of the buttocks and hardness of the hip bone kind of feeling. With my hands on the blanket, I tried to spring myself up from the bed using my elbows on the bed as support. The thing grabbed both my wrists. I swear, I literally felt fingers digging into both my wrist and its grip tightened and pushed me down on the bed. I panicked and uttered so loudly Buddhist chants that I woke up, or was I already awake, to find my girlfriend eyes wide open stunned, pale face staring at me. That thing was nowhere in sight, and I could move again. I did not tell her my experience immediately, but instead got up, switched on all the lights in the bedroom and living room, and started cursing and swearing. I read somewhere, or was it someone who told me, can't remember, that if you do that, they will be scared off by the anger and the earthly presence, while pacing up and down the living room and searching through Agoda for hotel rooms. I booked a new hotel and managed to pacify my girlfriend back to sleep, packed our bags, and I stayed awake until 6 a.m. in the morning. We checked out and left the place. The receptionist still asked me if everything was okay. I didn't even bother to explain. I just wanted to get out. After we checked into the new place, I told my girlfriend what happened. Guess what? She also felt uneasy but did not want to alarm me as she thought it might be due to her wariness as well. Furthermore, she said while she was asleep, she could feel hand or hands caressing her body in a sexual way. She thought it was me being cheeky. After what she told me, the fear actually turned to anger. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. All patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness on weekdays plus two exclusive bonus episodes on the weekends. They also receive early access to the Weird But True video series on the Weird Darkness website. And if you sign up at $10 per month or more, you also get more exclusive content, such as chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them, often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. I'm currently narrating UFOs, Chemtrails, and Aliens by Donald R. Prothero and Timothy D. Callahan. You can get more information about how to become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, read creepy stories or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. And congratulations to Tyler Watts. He's this week's Weird Darkness retweet winner and is receiving a free Weird Darkness crew neck sweatshirt. Next week's winner gets a free Weird Darkness hoodie. If you want to win, follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. The more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, and any other way you connect with the outside world. You can email me at darren at weirddarkness.com. And if you'd like to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast, please take a moment to leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. 
Dingo Bull left a review on Apple Podcasts saying, Yes, indeed. This is by far my favorite podcast. If there's a new episode, I'm watching before any other one. It's my go-to when I'm laying in bed at night. And Mike Trunner also left a review in Apple Podcasts saying, Awesome. Listen to it while sitting in the deer stand. Best podcast out there. Well, thank you very much for those nice reviews. I appreciate it. If you've not already done so, please take a moment, drop me an email, or leave a podcast review, and I might read yours in an upcoming show. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Tombs in Space was posted at The Unredacted. Gracie's Ghost was written by Gary Sweeney. The Murder of Bonnie Lee Scott was written by Troy Taylor. The Laundry Room was submitted anonymously to WeirdDarkness.com. Sleep Paralysis in Bangkok was written by Marky O. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. 1 John 3 verse 8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. With so many weirdos sending in their own stories for Weird Darkness, I know I've got a lot of right-brained creative weirdos listening. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorant Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorans Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorans Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362.